0: Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining. In this episode, we're going to be looking at five companies that are on a dip. Five companies that are on sale. Now, if you're anything like me, you're a value investor, and you're wanting to find very good companies at attractive prices. It's the Terry Smith motto. We want to buy good companies, but we don't want to overpay. The problem is, as you can see right here, we're looking at the S&P 500 chart. Year-to-date, the S&P 500 is up 15.86%. 15% year to date. And then the QQQ, these tech companies, they're up even more, 38% year to date. Now, if you're like me and you're looking at this, you're thinking, wow, a lot of these companies have ran up in price just this year. And it seems like yesterday they were so much cheaper. So you're trying to find deals in the market. What can we buy today that is on a dip? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about. I filtered for five companies that are trading at a substantial dip and I've ranked them in order of the dip. Now, the way that we do this is not just by my opinion. It's not just by me saying they're in a dip. This is by a mathematical equation called the 200-day simple moving average. On Qualtrum, I've developed something called the Dip Finder. And the Dip Finder is a simple tool. You enter in a watch list, and then it takes your list of companies, and it builds a chart that gives you a visual illustration of which companies are in a dip and which companies are in a price surge. If they're in a price surge, they'll be green above the x-axis. If they're in a dip, they'll be in the red, below the x-axis. And then the percentage that it shows, whether positive or negative, is based on the simple moving average of 200 days versus the current price of the company. Now, the 200-day simple moving average is a technical analysis term to describe the momentum in a stock, whether it's negative or positive. So if a company has a negative 200-day moving average, that means, simply put, that the price is going down the stock is becoming in a bigger and bigger dip. If the momentum's positive, then the stock is going up. So you have companies like NVIDIA, where this one has heavily positive momentum. The stock has gone up like crazy this year. Then we have other stocks that are in a dip. So as I've been looking at my different watch lists and looking at the different trading, I've been noticing the companies that are in a price surge and the ones that are in a price dip. And these ones are in a substantial dip. So I have five here and I've benchmarked them against the S&P 500 and the QQQ. So those last two ones that are in the green, that's the benchmark. That's where normal companies should be. These companies are obviously in the red. So let's go ahead and start off with company number one. And you may have guessed it, number one is Disney. And keep in mind, this is the smallest tip of the five, not the biggest. So this is just number one, it's gonna get worse from here. But Disney's not looking good. Disney has been trending down ever so slightly since the beginning of the year. It's down 5% overall. So technically this isn't really that big of a dip. It's just down slightly. Normally this wouldn't cause any alarm. It wouldn't cause any concern. The problem with Disney is the more that you zoom out, the worse the picture looks. We zoom out to one year and it's down 25%. Then we zoom out to five years. Still down 25%. That's really bad when you're still down that much in five years. Then we zoom out to 10 years and we have a 38% gain. A lot of companies had made that gain just this year. So an entire decade lost. Disney, in my opinion, is one of the most tragic companies to have performed this poorly. I think it's especially sad because so many retail investors, so many average people, just normal people going about their day, have invested in Disney. We have families that have invested in Disney because they they know the products. We visited the parks. We've seen the movies. We've seen how powerful the economics can be in this company. We have lots of people that are parents that buy Disney stock for their kids. as kind of a starter stock, right? We have lots of people that have exposure to Disney, and the performance has just been terrible. Now the company is sitting at a 10-year low. Back to prices in 2013. Bob Iger has come back to save the company from something that he largely started himself. He handed the company off to Bob Chapek. It was a total disaster. He took back over, and he's trying to repair things. So there's a couple things that's happening with Disney that I think could possibly turn this company around, and I want to go through some of them now. The first bit of news here, if we go to the news section, is there's reports that Disney is in talks to spin off ESPN, or at least make deals with ESPN. And I think that this is going to be accretive to the bottom line of Disney. The truth is, when I look at this right now, the big problem with Disney is that most people look at the company as being the parks and the movies, when in reality, a lot of Disney's ESPN and cable TV. So a lot of it is ESPN. But the problem is ESPN is being beaten up by big tech. Apple's coming in, buying Lionel Messi. We have Amazon diving in and buying all these uh, all these sports rights to football and everything. But we have ESPN right now facing bigger competition than they ever have in their history. So a big portion of Disney is facing ever-growing competition. And what Bob is trying to do in this situation is find any way to monetize ESPN as possible. He considers ESPN not core to Disney. It's, it's just not part of the magic flywheel of Disney. And I agree with Bob Iger. I don't think ESPN's core to Disney. If you look at the two products, I think that the parks and I think the merchandise and the cruises and the broadways and the movies and the music, all of that is core to Disney. But ESPN, that's kind of a side thing. That seems like something a big telecom company would own. Now, if we actually go to the source of this rumor, it's from a website called The Information. They say that Amazon has had early talks with Disney about working on streaming versions of ESPN it is developing, said people familiar with the matter. The tech giant could offer the service through one of its streaming offerings, helping to expand its distribution, while possibly also taking a minority stake in ESPN. So Amazon might invest directly in ESPN. Such an arrangement could shore up ESPN's status as the biggest force in sports media. This could also reposition the tech behemoth, they're talking about Amazon here, which has been trying to make a dent in sports streaming as more friend than foe to ESPN, and it could weaken the sports league bargaining power. So I really do like this deal. I like that ESPN is being adaptive. I like that they're making deals with big tech. I think that overall, changes need to be made because they are bleeding customers, profitability is going down, and big tech are the ones that have deep pockets. So I think this is a positive move for Disney. I think it will help offset some of the subscriber losses. This could be a catalyst to a stock that's really beaten up right now. Now, if we look at some of the fundamentals of Disney, the top line growth really shows no problems. If I was to look at this in just isolation, it shows a high amount of linearity, It's just going up in a straight line virtually. Some of this has been acquisition driven, so this hasn't been all organic, but the revenue growth is there. Disney's seeing its revenue growing. It's all the other metrics that look really bad. We have the EBITDA that stalled out back in 2018. It's starting to go back up a little bit, but it's still not not even close to there. We have the free cash flow. You can see the same thing. It stalled out right here, 2017 through 2019, and then it's still trying to be repaired. Here's the bottom line for Disney. The cash flows are not where they used to be, not even close. We can see this more visually illustrated when we look at the full timeline. Disney's cash flows are about where they were 10 years ago. So the stock price is where it was 10 years ago. Over the fullness of time, companies really aren't gonna grow if their cash flows don't grow. So we need cash flows to start accelerating and showing a line of growth. Now, if I zoom in over the past 10 years, This shows it even clearer. We have right here from 2013 to 2022, but in 2023, they're starting to move to profitability in a bigger way. The streaming's getting closer to profitability. They're pushing for more change to instantly cut costs and raise profitability. They've had a couple movies do okay, which has been helping out Disney. So if I was to give it my best guess of what the cash flows will look like in 2023, I think it's gonna be right around here. I think just under $4 billion dollars. So I think we see about $3.6, $3.8 billion in free cash flow. And then hopefully Disney can raise that year over year up to $5 billion, $7 billion, and dollars I think it's gonna be very tough for them to get back to this $10 billion mark. They are so far off from it and they face so much competition. But they could get back up to 3.6 to 4, and then up to 6 and up to 7. I really think that's attainable. If they do that, the stock price should start to head back into positive territory. We should see it trending upwards, back to 100 back to 115 So it's difficult to say if this is the dip to buy. I think the biggest risk you run with Disney, buying it here, is you have kind of the case of AT&T and Verizon, a big bloated company that really doesn't go anywhere for a long period of time. You buy basically a value trap. That's the risk you run with Disney. But I think that the chances of that are a minority. I think it's 20-30% chance that it's going to be a big value trap. I think more than likely, over the next couple of years, I could see Disney trading higher than it is today. So Disney's dip number one being 12% below the 200-day moving average. We move on to dip number two, which is 14% below the 200-day moving average, which is technically a significant dip. This is Nike. Yes, Nike. And as you can tell, I'm someone that... I love Nike. I wear Nike clothes. I like Nike products a lot. I think they're high quality. I love the logo and the branding and the history of the company. I even like how it was founded, how they competed with Adidas. I just like the company overall, and I continue to support it. No, I'm not sponsored by them. Never have been sponsored by them. I'd love to be, but unfortunately, I'm not that much of an athlete. So let's go ahead and dive into Nike and see why this company, this legendary company with immense brand power is on such a technical dip right now. Let's go ahead and take a look at what this dip actually looks like. Year-to-date, Nike's down 16.34%. Now, let me remind you, the S&P 500 is up 16%. So we have 33% underperformance relative to SPY this year. Greater relative underperformance against the QQQ. This is massive underperformance by one of the world's best companies. And we can really see this right here. The peak in 2021, like so many companies, And now it's back down to prices that are so much lower. And remember, in these type of cases, when the magic has gone away from these great stocks, when the price is really flattened down to five-year lows, that's usually a great time to start accumulating a position in a world-class company. So let's go ahead and see what's happening to Nike. The first thing that I want to mention that Nike's facing, like many other companies, I did an entire episode on how your returns are being stolen. Literally by thieves. They're stealing away your returns. Nike merchandise is being stolen at every step of the way. From the freight that ships it over from the ocean, to the warehouses, to fulfillment centers, to logistic centers, to the retail outlets. Every step of the way, organized crime is stealing from Nike. So they're having to invest a lot into preventing theft. And those investments weigh on the margins and profitability of the company. With both Nike and Disney, it's not the revenue that's being hit. The companies are growing revenue with tremendous levels of linearity, meaning it's literally going up in a straight line. Look at how linear that is. It's almost like a perfect straight line. We can zoom in over the past decade. This is what it looks like. Do you see any problems with this revenue at all? Nothing. For one quarter, it went slightly lower during a literal pandemic. A single quarter was it. Nike recovered much faster than most companies. So there is nothing absolutely nothing wrong with their revenue. The problem comes in with margins, with the actual profitability metrics. Their margins are being squeezed. One of them being theft and their investments into security eats away at their bottom line. Another thing that's a problem for them is extra inventory. See, these companies have to order a lot of goods and then they have to get rid of them. If they have extra inventory, they have to mark it down to get rid of it. And this is a big problem for Nike. So, Nike had to do a lot of markdowns in their products. They had to sell a lot of their products in places they don't normally sell, like Costco's. And Costco's have very low margins. So, to get rid of all of this inventory, it hurt their profitability. But if we look at this now, we look at the free cash flow here. This is over the past 10 years. We can see that it's still not that bad. We're having some decent cash flow. So, it doesn't look terrible. We flip this to annual and look at it. It looks like it's basically on track. We can look in the past 10 years. We can look all time. That doesn't look too bad, doesn't it? Looks like Nike's growing their free cash flow over time. And then if we look at the free cash flow yield of the company, I think it looks pretty good. The free cash flow yield is 3.19%. The stock-based comp adjusted free cash flow yield is 2.7. So a little bit more expensive there. The big problem with the company in terms of the valuation is the Ford PE because they are taking on losses from marking down products. So when we look at the earnings per share chart, this is where things get a little dicey with Nike. And we see a bit of a concerning trend here. So we can see it over time and we can see the long-term growth path of Nike. A lot of good linearity there. It looks like it's just going up over time. Then we see what's happening more recently. Let's zoom into the past 10 years. We see it growing over the past nine years. And then for some reason this year, every single quarter is going lower. We have the four most recent quarters in earnings per share, 93 cents. That is the problem right there. The most recent trend is that it's going negative. Now, in my opinion, I think they're going to turn this around. If you're looking at the company right now on a future earnings per share basis based on the next 12 months, it's going to look really expensive because it's going to take more than a year for Nike to turn this around. So based on next year, the company looks pretty expensive. But I think longer term, outside of one year, I can see Nike returning to its normal growth path and earnings. When that happens, I think this stock is gonna get a really good bump. So we had Disney in number one with a 12% dip. We have Nike in number two with a 14% dip. Then we move on to number three, a 15.5% dip, and the company this time is PayPal. Now the first thing I'll mention with PayPal is I already did a pretty in-depth valuation on this company. And if you haven't seen it, I would recommend watching that first. It's on my other YouTube channel. It's the video that literally says PayPal right on the thumbnail. And I walk through three different scenarios of projecting out the next five years of cash flows. I give a return distribution chart. And what it shows, the basic conclusion for this company, is that even in the kind of worst case scenarios, the worst realistic case, it's not too bad. You just get subpar returns. So the downside with PayPal, by my estimate... It's not too terrible. I don't think that investors are going to have a lot of downside buying at this price. Because if we look at the dip here, it's on a technical dip with its 200-day moving average. It's down 18% year to date. So it's down big while the S&P 500's up big. And then we have the past year, it's down 39% or 33% rather. The past five years, it's down 34%. And it went all the way from $300 per share now all the way down to $61 per share. The trouble with this type of company is it's tricky. A lot of people were saying that PayPal is the cheapest it's ever been. It's on a dip when the company was $90 per share. They're saying that it's it's the easiest dip ever. Buy the company now, and now it went from $90 to $61. And it's even gone down as low as $50. So you want to be careful with these type of companies. Just because a company's gone down in price does not mean it won't go down lower. And in many cases, momentum carries these stocks lower and lower. But if we look at the absolute valuation of the company, it is trading at a 15 Ford P.E. ratio. Right now, the market multiple of just your average company is around 19 Ford P.E. in the S&P 500. So it's actually trading below the S&P 500. This company's cheaper than the rest of the market. So a lot of the analysis here is, do you think the S&P 500 is going to grow faster than PayPal? If you do, this company deserves to trade at a cheaper multiple. But if you think PayPal is a better company, higher quality, and it will grow faster, then buying it at a price cheaper than the S&P 500 makes a really good relative bet. We have another valuation metric here. The free cash flow yield of the company is 5%. Now, a lot of investors focus in on this, but remember, this is not a true indicator of the valuation of the company because the traditional the traditional definition of free cash flow is just looking at the cash from operations minus the capex. It does not factor in the expense of stock-based comp. When we look at that, we can see that stock-based comp eats up around one third of the cash flows, and that is a real cost to the investors. So you wanna factor in this stock-based comp. When we factor in the stock-based comp, the company's trading at a 3%, 3 3.22% free cash flow yield, which I think is a true reflection of their valuation right now. So we have a company trading below the S&P 500 at a 15 Ford PE, and it's trading at a really decent free cash flow yield of 3.22%. But the big question with PayPal is growth economic growth in the company. And this is what I struggle with with this company. Now, the interesting thing is all three of these companies have something in common. All three of them have resilient revenue growth. They're all growing their top line, but it's the profitability, the margins of the company that are coming under stress. That was the case with Disney. They were growing revenue. That was the case with Nike. They were growing revenue. And that's the same thing with PayPal. If we look at PayPal all time, since 2014... Does this have any glaring issues right here? Can you really highlight a problem? Sure, it's had times where it's ebbed and flowed a little bit. I guess it's slowing down a bit to 7%. But that's still decent. That's above, that's above GDP revenue growth. So this isn't where the problem is. The problem with all of these companies that are really struggling is the profitability of the company. If we look at the free cash flow, while the revenue is going up over time, the free cash flows are not going up. And this is i think the biggest red flag for me with paypal if i look at the past 10 years this is what it looks like we can zoom into the past five years so this is quarterly the past five years now if we take out this one outlier here we have an outlier for whatever reason but we remove that out of the picture we get a clean picture of what the cash flows look like on a quarterly basis it's almost literally flat for the past five years straight so why is the revenue going up for paypal but the profitability remaining flat Typically when you have companies where their economics get worse over time, that is a result of increased competition. So if we look at PayPal, they offer Venmo and then their PayPal transfer services. You can buy products online using PayPal checkout. Now I don't know if you're like me, but when I go online and I'm shopping, if I'm on my phone, I use Apple Pay. It is so incredibly easy to use. I don't have to type anything into the website. And I use Apple Pay already. I trust Apple with that information. They have brand value and trust. Apple Pay has been an increasing competitor to PayPal with online transactions. PayPal seven years ago existed at a time where they were one of the only options to pay for things online. And now there's more ways than ever to pay for things online. So what I see is maybe the primary reason why this company's struggling is an increase in competition. I think that that fact is undeniable And it will be interesting to see how this one does. So that is dip number three, PayPal. So we have Disney in a 12% dip under their 200-day moving average, Nike at 14%. We have PayPal at 15.5%. And then we have the next one, Ulta Beauty at minus 15.75% below the 200-day moving average. This is a pretty significant dip for such a great company. Ulta Beauty does not get enough credit. This stock is incredible. It really is an incredible stock. And it's one of those sleeper stocks where it's one of the biggest winners over the past decade, but most people really have no clue. They've never heard of it before, aside from just being some retailer. In the past decade, Ulta has given 302% returns. This company is an absolute beast. It's a great growth story. It's an economically sound company. But if we look year to date, We can see that we're we're running into some trouble. It's selling off a bit. It used to be at five about five fifty up here. And now the company's trading at what? It's trading at 407. So from 550 to 407, there we get our dip. Now let's go ahead and take a look at what's causing this dip for Ulta and what we see in the future of this company. First of all, When I look at what's causing this dip, it can be a number of factors, but I think the biggest reason why is overall market uncertainty, interest rates going up, people being fearful of a recession, and them not wanting to own retailers. Ulta Beauty is a retailer that sells a lot of beauty products, makeup and hair products, all that type of good stuff. Now, if there's market hesitancy, if people don't want to own these type of companies, that might be an opportune time to jump in if you don't agree with the market, that we're going to go through a huge recession. Another thing I'd like to point out is this is a beauty company. Can you spot the recession on the chart? A little game I like to play. Where's the recession? In this chart, we did have one of the worst financial crises ever in the history of this country. But yet back in 2009, right here, 2007 to 2009, I can't see it. If you were just reliant on this chart to see trouble, you would not be able to identify it. Ulta continually grew throughout the recession. They opened up more locations. They remained profitable. That's a very good track record. We actually ran into more trouble with Ulta during the store closures. They sent all their employees home. They still paid them while they weren't working. The company treated their employees excellently. That hit their revenue a little bit, but Ulta was in such a good situation, they still made it through uh, the 2020 COVID pandemic without much trouble now again we look at these other metrics here i just want to study the history of this company for a minute look at the free cash flows of volta since around 2003 were a little shaky but this wasn't a problem with the company if you look back what they were doing they were reinvesting this cash flow at very high rates of return so all the extra cash they had they put into capex the capex at that time was opening up new locations Decorating the stores, building the buildings, opening up the new locations required a lot of cash. So that whole time period wasn't a lack of profitability. They weren't struggling there. They were just using all of their cash flows to open up new locations and scale and scale. And that was wise choice by them. Then we see when they start to get to bigger scale and we see those economies of scale start to work in. From 2016, the free cash flow has steadily gone up. Free cash flow is a little bit more volatile than earnings, but not that much so. This is great free cash flow. Since the company doesn't have a lot of developers or programmers, you don't need PhDs to run an Ulta store, they don't have a lot of stock-based comp. They can pay these employees hourly, they pay them well, but as a result, we have a very minimal amount of dilution. Look at this amount of stock-based comp compared to the free cash flow. 43 million versus 1.17 billion. 47 million versus 887 million. So the company's becoming more efficient over time, less dilution proportionate to their cash flow. Now we look at the earnings per share of the company, and I'm gonna swap over to quarterly here so we can see this on a more granular basis. All time, this is what it looks like. Again, I can't even see the recession on the chart. It really is impossible to tell they're really having any trouble at all. They grew earnings substantially from 2007 $0.07 per share up to $0.37 per share in 2011. So big EPS growth throughout a recession. And I think that's because they're in the beauty category. We look at this one and it continues to grow with great linearity. It's actually accelerating growth over time. The only thing that's a blemish on their record is something that's a a once-in-a-lifetime, hopefully once-in-a-lifetime thing, which was complete closures of stores nationwide. We're not going to do that again. We can't afford to do that. So when we look at this, if we fill in the gap here, which I think is fair for Ulta, this is an unlikely one-in-a-lifetime occurrence, it looks like purely linear growth. And even to this day, the last couple of quarters have not been bad. Maybe their guidance isn't quite what investors want, but this still looks great. I don't see any problems fundamentally with this company. Even on a quarterly basis, the returns on capital employed which is basically the returns they're getting for reinvesting back in their business continue to increase, going from 6% per quarter, so about 25% per year. Now it's gone all the way up to around 11% per quarter. So now they're up to 44% per year on their ROCE. This is a really good growth over time. We look at the gross margins of the company, they're very flattish, they're not increasing a whole lot, but they are going up a little bit over time, 1% gain over the past decade. We look at the operating margins, again, very flattish, not substantial growth, but we're going from 10, 11% to around 15%, it's headed in the right direction. We look at the profit margin, the same thing, slightly higher profit margins because of scalability. So we see this company actually scaling in many cases better than some tech companies. Now, another thing I was looking at when I was looking at why Ulta was selling off, I was actually diving into this company and doing some renewed research on it. And I was interested to see, are they losing market share against Amazon or Walmart or other places to shop for beauty products? So what I did was I, I brought up the teen survey from Piper Sandler. This is a well done survey, it's a respected one, which just means they use a lot of survey science, right? They don't just do this haphazard, they do proven techniques to prove what teens are doing, what their shopping habits are like. And this is from fall of 2019. So 2019, this is what the survey shows. When we look at top beauty destinations, Ulta's number one with 38%, okay? 38% market share from teens, With Ulta. Then what I did was I fast forward to modern day. This is the 2023 Piper Sandler survey, and I wanted to see how things changed over time. Well, wouldn't you know, we have Ulta Beauty at the very top like it was before, but in this case, it's 41%. So what's going on here? Ulta Beauty has a bigger market share of teens today than they did back in 2019. So when I look at this, I'm trying to come up with a bear case for Ulta. I'm trying to come up with a downside. The downside is recession but I can't see a recession on the charts throughout history. I can't see a recession in 2009 in the earnings per share. I can't see it in the free cash flows of the company. So recession doesn't seem like it's that big of a concern. We have market share and competition forces, but they've gained market share. They've gained substantial momentum over competitors over the past four years. So competition, recession concerns, I don't know what's wrong with Ulta. I don't know why this company's selling off. So, with Ulta being on a dip where it's 16% below the 200 day moving average, while the SP 500 is 6% above and the QQQ is 13% above, I think that it's time that investors could start looking at Ulta. I think potentially right now it's a pretty good deal. Now, moving on to the final dip. This one's the biggest. This one surpasses all the other ones. Dip number five is Paramount, which is down 21% below their 200-day moving average. This company has been a disaster of a stock. This is one of the ones that Berkshire Hathaway, under Warren Buffett's control, bought a portion into this company. And Warren Buffett was asked, why did you buy Paramount? And then Warren Buffett proceeded to respond with five minutes of why Paramount, and especially streaming, is a bad business going on about how the actors and the producers make all the money, the shareholders get robbed in the situation. And then the interviewer was like, okay, Buffett, but why did you buy the stock? And he goes, well, we'll see what happens. He did not give an answer. Now, You can try to fill in the blank there, but I think it was just a simple mistake. I think that Buffett bought into the company thinking it was a little bit of value. Sometimes he buys value traps. Buffett is not immune to making bad investments. He's done so before. Luckily, this was a smaller position in Berkshire, so it's not really gonna damage them long-term. But if we look at Paramount right here, here's the dip. We had this right here, which is not a glitch. This isn't incorrect data. The price went from $23, to $15 or $17 in a single day because of a bad earnings report, subscribers slow down, they have huge losses in basically all of their divisions, even their movie division. They're saying that next year they're going to be profitable, but so far it's just been tough for Paramount. They can attract subscribers. They can gain subscribers at an incredibly unattractive price for Paramount. They're not making enough money per subscriber. So they're gaining subscribers in numbers, but they're not profitable because this content costs a lot to make. Now, when I look at the streaming world and I try to assess which companies I think will do really well and which ones will do poorly, when I look at Paramount, I see this one as an afterthought in streaming. So think about sitting down on your couch on a Sunday evening and you want to turn on a good series to watch. You might open up Netflix. That's a lot of people's first go-to. I believe another one is Max, which is HBO's new streaming service. So we have Netflix, we have Max, which I think are two of the anchor streaming services. They're what people check most frequently. Then we have Amazon Prime Video. Most people have that already because they're paying for Prime for shipping and other benefits. So we have three anchor services there, but then you get out to the other ones. There's some Peacock, you have that as well. That's another streaming service from NBC. And then you have Paramount. Paramount is fighting in place of like Hulu and Disney Plus and kind of the fourth and fifth tier ones on the list. So when you look at Paramount, in my opinion, this streaming service is a bit of an afterthought. So I believe that they're in an undesirable position being the fourth or fifth tier in the streaming ranking. And that makes it very difficult to have substantial pricing power. They have a couple good series. They have Yellowstone and they have these other ones that they've tried to leverage, but even the creators of Yellowstone have realized that they have all the control and they're forcing them to pay them huge amounts of money for their show. So the economics are under pressure as well. All of this has culminated to a stock that has not been doing well. Now, if we look at the revenue and we zoom in, let's say over the past three years to get a a more granular look at this, it looks like it's growing slightly. Not a lot of growth, but we are seeing growth. The problem comes in with the profitability, much like Nike, much like Disney, much like PayPal. We're seeing top line growth, but the profitability leaves a lot to be desired. Over the past five years, the EBITDA has gone from 1.5 billion, 1 billion per quarter, down to the negative, minus 1 billion, flat, $93 million in EBITDA lost last quarter, 630 million three quarters ago. Now the thought here is that they're going to be profitable in 2024 and they're streaming and the EBIT is going to swoop back upwards, but right now it doesn't paint a pretty picture. We look at the free cash flows. This looks even worse. We can erase a little bit of the history and just go to the past five years. This is a horrible free cash flow view. It just looks awful. PayPal looks better than this. At least PayPal is consistently in the positive, but what we're getting with Paramount is negative free cash flow after negative free cash flow quarter after quarter. So I look at all of these profitability metrics, we can throw a net income looking over the past five years, this looks no different, it's going in the negative. And the earnings per share, maybe the most important one, also looks really bad going in the negative. Again, they have said that it's going to swing back positive in 2024. So they have guidance long term, that looks positive. But remember, the executives can say whatever they want. Of course, they believe they're going to earn money in 2024, but they're facing competition that does not care about their projections. Netflix and Max do not care about the profitability of Paramount, and they're going to compete fiercely with them. Now, if we look at the valuation of it, the cash flows look a lot different than the P-E ratio of the company. The cash flows look horrible. They're negative right now. Negative free cash flow yield because the cash flows are negative. So, of course, that makes sense there. We can't really value the company based on cash flows right now. But when we look at the P-E ratio, Because of their analyst projections of the next 12 months of earnings, it's trading at a 13 PE, which if that's accurate, the company is very cheap. The commodity multiple, meaning the price a company trades at, if you think there's going to be no value creation whatsoever, is around 13. So this company's trading at a commodity multiple. Investors are pricing it right now as though it's basically a static company that's not really going to create value or destroy value. That's what it's priced as so if your thesis is that paramount will create a lot of value over the next five years it is dramatically undervalued in that case it is a buy but if you think that paramount is going to continue to struggle to create any real value and it's not really going to destroy value either then it's priced appropriately today when i look at this and i compare this against the other companies I still don't like Paramount. I still rather own Netflix, and I do own Netflix today. So I'm coming at this from a biased perspective. I really think that Netflix is in such a more enviable position. Netflix is projected to, they're just gushing cash flows at this point. It's literally just a cash flow beast. Paramount is not at that point. So while I think there is a case for Paramount, if you're a deep value investor trying to buy the cheapest companies and hope for a turnaround story... This might be a good play, and for whatever reason, Buffett owns it, so you have that as well. But I don't base my buys off of super investors. I won't buy it just because Buffett owns it. I think Netflix is far better. Netflix is the one I own. Now, in terms of these five companies that are all on a dip, the one that I think is currently the best value and the one that I am the most attracted to buying today... Is Ulta. I think the company's fundamentals look the best. I think it's in a very enviable position. I've not seen any weakness in their fundamentals whatsoever, and I think any predictions of doom and gloom because of economic turmoil in the future is likely to have minimal impact on Ulta compared to other companies. So in terms of what I may buy out of these five companies on a dip, I'm leaning more towards Ulta than any others. But I also think that there's a case to be made for Disney, for Nike, and for PayPal. The one that I would avoid personally is Paramount. But that's my thoughts. Let me know if you agree or disagree. I hope you enjoyed this overview of five companies on a dip and I'll see you in the next one.